Have you ever heard of Senalytics? It's the latest breakthrough in aging and longevity science that I honestly hadn't heard about until I had an email about our next guest, whose work I'm familiar with. I'm a huge fan of Neurohacker Collective that was founded in 2015 with a mission of creating best-in-class well-being products. And I've been following their work for years to learn anything and everything possible about biohacking. We've even quoted Heather Sanderson, a medical advisor and podcast host with Neurohacker Collective, on our HRV episode. One quick look at their About Us section on their website, and I saw many of the leaders, innovators in health, longevity, and wellness from around the world, and quite a few who we've interviewed, like Dr. Anna Lemke from episode 162, Dr. Stickler from episode 96, and Dr. Viusage from episode 93. And in their collective insights section, you'll see many names we quote often, like Dr. Andrew Huberman, Deepak Chopra, Dale Bredesen, David Rabin, Bruce Lipton, Michael Gelb, Jim Quick, and I could go on and on here. These are the leaders and innovators in the field of health, wellness, and biohacking. This is gonna be a phenomenal episode. I'm so excited. And with that, I wanna welcome you back to the Neuroscience Meets Social and Emotional Learning Podcast, where we cover the science-based evidence behind social and emotional learning for schools, emotional intelligence training in the workplace, with tools, ideas, and strategies that we can all use for immediate results with our brain and mind. I'm Andrea Samadhi, an author and an educator with a passion for learning, specifically on the topics of health, well-being, and productivity, and launched this podcast to share how important an understanding of our brain is for our everyday life and results using the most current research. If there's a tool, strategy, or resource that I find that could be helpful to improve productivity and results, whether we're a teacher in the classroom, a coach, or in the modern workplace, I'll share it with you here. On today's episode number 285, we'll be speaking with Dr. Gregory Kelly, the Director of Product Development at Neurohacker Collective. He's a naturopathic physician and the author of the book, Shapeshift, The Shape Intelligent Solution, that's all about getting healthy while creating your ideal shape. As I was researching for this episode, I couldn't help thinking, how in the earth did I miss this topic of senolytics? Because I'm always looking for anything new when it comes to productivity, health, and wellness hacks. While preparing for this episode, the Neurohacker Collective team was extremely helpful. Tina Gammon, their marketing manager, sent me the trio package of Qualia Senolytic for vision, night, and mind. And you can see it right behind me on my desk. And I'll be sharing the immediate results that I felt with the night and then the mind products with a level of clarity that I've never felt before. I haven't yet tried the vision one, but I've got lots of questions to ask Dr. Kelly about it today. So hang tight, because on today's science-packed episode, we'll dive deep into this cutting-edge topic with the latest anti-aging research where we'll cover what is cellular senescence. What are the hallmarks of aging? And why is cellular senescence an important hallmark? The difference between cellular senescence and autophagy, 
with a quick review of ninth grade science with mitosis. We'll look at classical places where senescent cells take hold in the body and the science to support senolytics from the Mayo Clinic and Scripps Institute. We'll look at exactly how does senolytics work, the correct way to dose senolytics, and what makes their qualia senolytic a groundbreaking supplement in the longevity space. Before we get to our questions, I want to share a little bit about Dr. Kelly. He has extensive experience in both natural medicine and nutrition and has been an influential figure in this field. He has served as the editor of the Journal of Alternative Medicine Review and taught advanced clinical nutrition, counseling skills, and doctor-patient relationships at the University of Bridgeport College of Naturopathic Medicine. Dr. Kelly has also published hundreds of articles on natural medicine and nutrition, contributed three chapters to the textbook of natural medicine, and has over 30 journal articles indexed on PubMed, where we spend a lot of time on this podcast diving into. His areas of expertise include nootropics, anti-aging, and regenerative medicine, weight management, sleep, and the chronobiology of performance and health. Additionally, he's helped develop several rare and powerful compounds that have scientifically shown senolytic activity and which have a wider range of mechanisms than existing senolytic supplements available. Before I get lost in my words on this topic, let's meet Dr. Gregory Kelly and see what we can learn today to open our eyes to something new in this ever-changing field of science, health, and longevity. Welcome, Dr. Gregory Kelly. Thank you so much for being here on a Friday night. And I'm just curious, before I get to the questions, with your background, what would you typically be doing on a Friday night? And I'm just imagining you hanging out with Dr. Stickler and Dr. Andrew Huberman formulating your next product. You know, what would your typical Friday night look like for you? So, um, they don't live anywhere near me. Um, Dr. Stickler is over in Austin most of the time, I believe now. But okay. um, I live right on the ocean in a town called Oceanside, okay. California. It's in the, the furthest north you can basically get in San Diego County. And I live just across from the ocean. So Friday night, like honestly, and which what I'm going to do when we finish recording is I'll do, do you know the X3 bar by Jakish? That, um, it's a, it's a, heavy duty strap. So I'll go out and watch the sunset and do that exercise. Oh. And I most nights do it um, doing a FaceTime video with a friend in Santa Barbara. So we, you know, support oh. each other to do that. That's workout. So and then I, you know, um, and watch the sunset. So I feel oh. like, you know, I'm in a great location for that. So I try to take advantage of it. Well, that sounds beautiful. I absolutely love it. My exercise and then end your day that way. And I'm just grateful that I get this opportunity to learn with you tonight. This is, um, I'm so excited for this. Um, I'm thrilled to to have you today. Thanks. It's my pleasure. I love talking about this subject, so I can't wait to get started. Perfect. Well, can we just start with the basics here? I watched your interview with Dave Asprey because he's been promoting your new Qualia product that we'll be talking about today. It's behind me. Um, it came in the mail and I'm just so excited to talk about what I've experienced with it. Um, but I, I've mentioned that, you know, he's he's talking about it all over the place. And 
I watched his interview that you did with him and he's got such a creative mind. I loved how he asked you, why did you call your company Neurohacker Collective? What a great question to open up with. Could we start? Yeah, names, up? especially for a new company is such a challenge, but it, um, it started out with, you know, really building on Dave and his pioneering the, the idea in terms of biohacking. And our company started with the brain front and center. So the idea, um, our CEO, as an example, had kind of toasted himself. He'd worked super hard, sleep deprived, high stress, and, you know, just got brain fog, right? He was, you know, lost productivity and, um, and realized like how important the brain was for basically making the world better place and thought, well, that's, that's what we should do. We should create a company that first and foremost focuses on helping people help themselves to have, you know, more functional, higher performing brain. So that's the neurohacker piece, it, like the neuro from brain, the hacker from biohacker. And then collective came in because especially starting out, we realized, wow, there's, you know, like people like an Andrew Uberman or Dr. Dan Stickler, right? There's just these amazingly talented right, capable men and women scattered around the country that, you know, they're not going to uproot and come work for a new company. But wow, can we tap into their expertise? And in this collective, we is smarter than me sense, bring some of what they have into what we're doing. So create basically that synergy of, you know, outside expertise, our internal expertise, and then the last piece is citizen science. So all the people that are out there, you know, measuring things and doing self experiments. And, you know, can we tap into that community? I love that. And when when I heard you explain it to Dave Asprey, I love that we idea. Um, Dr. Dan Siegel came on our podcast and he talked about that idea that um, it's not just about me or you, it's about we, all of us together, the collective. So I, I love how you've you brought everyone together. And that's really, in essence, what I'm trying to do on the podcast. It's over the years, reaching for the best. And, you know, so so when I saw who you've got, I, I pretty much quoted everybody that, you, that you've got on your collective. Uh, you know, Michael Gelb, I've put a quote from him and, and, you know, Jim Quick, if I haven't had him on as a guest, I've definitely mentioned them. So there, it's just a powerful group that you've created over there. Very, very neat to see. Well, thank you. Thank you. So, so let's get into this. So I didn't know about this topic at, at all before I had, you know, done the research. I thought, you know, well, I'm all excited about having you on. And then I actually went in and looked at, you know, you've got products. I knew there were products, but I knew nothing about cellular senescence. So can you explain it for people that might be like me and had never heard about this from the two angles, maybe the zombie explanation for the movie experts and the gardener analogy for those who like the gardening side, just, you know, the basics of it. Yeah. So cellular senescence, um, we often talk about a model called the hallmarks of aging, which we didn't invent. Some other writers originally um, published in Cell, which is a, a prestigious journal in 2013, about these nine characteristics that all organisms seem to have in common as they age. Um, and actually, in January, they expanded it to 12. So now there's 12. But one of the original nine and one of the, still the 12 is called cellular senescence. 
And the idea is that as we age, think of cells also aging and having a life cycle. And senescent cells specifically are cells that are have been stopped from dividing. So they can't make, you know, uh, offspring. They can't create you know, daughter cells, as an example. And in theory, our immune system would just, you know, find them and gobble them up and they would be gone. But what happens in aging is that they accumulate. So the, the zombie metaphor for people, uh, the movie um, with Brad Pitt, as an example, and I, I'm a big fan of that book, actually, <laughs> and have met the author in the past at Comic-Con way back. And um, but the idea, reason behind zombie cells, that analogy, is because think of a zombie as somewhere between living and dead, right? It can't create offspring, but, you know, it's not dead either. Yeah. And the other aspect of a zombie is it could, you know, infect new people and turn them into zombies. So senescent cells have that characteristic, right? They're not fully alive in the sense like they've been frozen. They can't create new offspring which is a defining characteristic of living cells, but they haven't been killed off. And the last piece is that senescent cells secrete these compounds into the world around them. So the environment in our tissue and those signals can turn cells nearby into new senescent cells. So they can essentially zombify otherwise healthy, healthy cells. So that's where analogy comes from. And then, we at Neurohacker tend to use much more of a gardening analogy. And part of that goes to our, our VP of marketing, Lauren, is a like um, loves gardening and some of the other people on our team. So I was trying to think of a, a non-zombie way to communicate that to Lauren when we were developing this product. And I said, all right, well, think of like a, a plant, like a healthy plant, all the leaves, vibrant green, plants doing really well, but, you know, periodically, uh, you know, because of, a past or some other reason, a, a leaf will turn yellow, right? It will be somewhat damaged. And the idea is that leaf would eventually fall off the plants. And you know, then in its place, a new, healthy, vibrant green leaf would grow. And sometimes that doesn't happen. And that's why a good gardener will periodically go out and prune their plants, right? Like prune away any of the, the damaged leaves. And so senolytics, which is a term we'll get to, it's basically the equivalent of the gardener pruning these senescent cells out of our tissues. So the, the same reason we would prune a plant, right, to get rid of a, a leaf that's damaged and taking up resources, um, allow for new growth, improve the overall vitality and health of the plant. That's the same reason that we want to prune away senescent cells. So we, we tend to use that metaphor a lot more at Neurohacker Collective. And the last piece of that is Senescent cells, I mentioned, they're kind of frozen, right? They're like, all right, we're not going to let you make any new cells. And you haven't gone you know, through cell death yet. You're in between. But senescent cells eventually should proceed through what's called apoptosis, which is programmed cell death. And apoptosis comes from a Greek word meaning falling off but in the sense of a leaf falling off a tree or a fruit falling off a branch type of thing, right? So that's also one of the reasons we like that, you know, leaf pruning metaphor, because the goal of a senescent cell's journey should eventually be this falling off process. And the goal of a senolytic would be something that would support it on its journey, getting there because it's been stuck somewhere along the way. So that explanation today helped me to see it in a different way because I've been thinking about it 
in terms of like, we know inflammation in our body because we feel the inflammation. We could, you know, get up in the morning, we look in the mirror, we go, we know there's something not right when we're off, but how do we know we have these cells that are dead in our body? Do we feel them? Can we see them? Do we know they're there? Well, that's why I like the plant analogy as well. Because if a plant just had a couple yellow leaves, I, I mean, who knows what the plant feels, but the plant's still going to be pretty healthy, right? It's going to do well. But at some point, it'll reach a threshold of enough yellowing leaves where the whole function of the plant will be compromised. And if we don't do something at that point as a gardener, then you know we'll have lost the plant. And some of the experts in the field of um, longevity and cellular senescence particularly think that's the same, that there's a threshold level. If it's really low in our tissues or organs, we're probably not going to experience anything. We'd still want to prune the, the yellowing leaves away, but we wouldn't feel consequences. But above that, that threshold, then we can feel all kinds of things. So one of the reasons I think the um, anti-aging community is most excited about cellular senescence and then strategies to remove them, um, so that, that would be the senolytics, is that because they've just been found to contribute to so many of the things that challenge us as we get older. Like almost every tissue you can think of, the brain, the heart, muscles, joints, senescent cells seem to contribute to making it harder to perform well in those tissues. Got it. So we've talked a lot about exercise uh, for preventing the shortening of telomeres on this podcast. So can you orient us to where senescent cells came in uh, to the research? I've seen you explain the, high, the, the years of where the research came in. Can you just give us a snapshot of the history for a second? Yeah, so um, telomere attrition is one of the other hallmarks. So it's its own, you know, one of the 12. And um, so we'll go, I guess, on like a journey back in time. So in 1961, and this was working like in a, like a cell culture in a, a, a dish, um, this person named Hayfleck, and he wasn't alone, but it was named after him, found that after a certain number of divisions, cells in that test tube would just stop dividing. They would basically freeze. So we would now call that replicative senescence, but that's where the idea of cellular senescent or senescent cell came from was that these cells just for some reason after about 50 divisions just said, hey, I'm done. I'm not, not gonna make any new cells. And um, later in the seventies, you know, then the idea of telomeres uh, like that, um, you know, the, the very ends of DNA that aren't replicated each time a cell divides, so they would have attrition. They would, you know, each division, you'd lose a, a little bit more at the end. And then at some point, you'd have lost enough that the cell essentially executes, it's called a damage, DNA damage um, repair program. But it says, okay, we don't want to risk copying ourselves because we may inadvertently have mutations or damage to our DNA. So let's just stop, right? So that's where like telomere attrition can lead to cellular senescence. And for a long time, it was that was the only connection. That was thought that, you know, the, the end result of shortening telomeres over time would be cellular senescence. And that was it. Mm -hmm. um, I think it was in 84, two female scientists discovered telomerase, right, which can then like lengthen a bit telomeres. Um, and 
what I would say eventually came out was that all kinds of other things they found could cause a cell to become senescent way before telomere attrition did. So way before you hit the, the Hayflick limit, if you did things to stress that cell culture, like, you know, UV radiation or lack of nutrients or, you know, did something to um, disrupt the mitochondria in those cells, it would cause what they called premature stress-induced senescence. So this is how I think the, the field has leaned, is that it's probably unlikely that most of what we think of as cellular senescence in an aging concept is because of telomeres shortening. It's much more because of this stress-induced premature senescence that's causing our, our cells to become senescent and just linger that way. So that's, I, I don't know if that answered the question, but in general, things that would speed up telomere attrition would also speed up senescence because they are, like I said, somewhat interrelated. Got it. And so exercise, as an example, is yep. one of the few things that's been shown um, in human studies and animal studies to slow the process of creating senescent cells. So um, in general, you can almost say, you know, exercise slows almost all of the hallmarks of aging. Right. And how I came across Dr. Stickler uh, around the pandemic time was the time when our podcast took a turn right towards health and wellness. I couldn't have guests on that weren't focused this way. And that's how I met him. And and he went deep into, you know, his areas of expertise and he held up his arm and he was wearing this whoop device that that I now don't take off. But, you know, every <laughs> single guest you learn something from and and, you know, he left his mark on me with the whoop. But um, then we we started to look at these top five health staples and I was trying to really dive deep. It seems like exercise fixes everything, you know, it fixes you know, your, your mood, your anxiety, it just seemed to be the, the answer for everything. So we put that as one of the daily staples or, you know, something to really focus on. Then we put sleep that we know is the foundation for our life and then healthy diet, optimizing our microbiome. We brought in um, Dr. Vusage, who is a part of your collective. And then we did inter intermittent fasting. So if you look at, you know, these top five health staples that I identified, what would you think, according to your hallmarks of aging, what are we missing from this list that you've uncovered from your work with, with this field? Well, um, so one of the new three that was added to the hallmarks was dysbiosis. So gut microbiome that like the, you know, the changes in that that happen with aging. So that's now part of the 12. Um, most of the others, like I said, they're more the characteristics of what happens in aging as opposed to the strategies necessarily that you would do to mitigate them, right? So I know I'm just a huge fan personally of what I think of as the fundamentals. So you named most of them, right? right. You know, what you eat, when you eat, um, you know, exercise, um, sleep, you know, making sure you're getting enough and good quality, um, stress reduction. I um, mentioned when we were kicking off, you know, that I'd go out here in not too distant future and watch the sunset, right? So the timing of light exposure. So, and, and part of it, so in, in our hypothalamus, there's certain things that are, I think of them as self-regulated, right? So 
you know, appetite. So that's where food comes in and sleep, right? That's in the hypothalamus and sex drive, that's there. And the body clock, right? So there's your life uh, or your light piece. And then, um, you know, stress, the HPA, the hypothalamus is like super big and the HPA axis, right? So there's these core groups of things that we evolved to have, you know, largely self-regulated for us, um, temperature and thirst are two other ones that are in there. And, and those are our biggest opportunities to, I think, change both our short-term and long-term health by doing better in those areas, because they're so important. They've all been grouped together with mechanisms in place to help, you know, in, in essence, us make sure those needs are satisfied. And in the current world, often, you know, one or more of those needs goes unfulfilled. So, Yeah, you're not the, the first person to remind me to add stress reduction on there. So I've definitely got to add a sixth staple and, and just keep learning and, and improving on these areas. Um, so what would be the difference between cellular senescence and a now I'm not going to say this word right. Autophagy. What's the difference? Yes, no, I think that's right. So the so like the simple difference is cellular senescence is talking about a whole cell, and autophagy is talking largely about things inside the cell, uh, proteins and organelles. So like inside a cell, you'll have what they call organelles, so tiny organs that do things like copy DNA, store DNA, clean things up. So autophagy is really a, a stress response program designed for maintenance, right? To recycle and repair individual proteins or damaged organelles. And then those component parts can be put back to use, but like, you know, build a new protein or, you know, make a new organelle or make more mitochondria, that type of thing. So I, I tend to think of things on a continuum of stress to a cell. So like, just think of like, I mentioned this idea of a lot of cellular senescence is stress induced, but things that would be stressful for a cell. So when a cell is stressed, the first thing it's going to try to do is toughen itself up, like get ready, right? So become resilient. So um, antioxidant defenses, it'll try to ratchet up how it deals with that because almost all stress causes oxidative stress. And if that's not enough and, you know, proteins start to get gunked up or organelles start to have a little bit of damage, then it'll execute the autophagy software program and say, all right, well, I'll just, you know, maintenance, I'll just fix these things. And if damage gets to a point where, oh, maintenance isn't going to be enough, that's when cellular senescence program gets executed. It's like, okay, too much damage, too much stress. We'll just freeze this cell where it is and worry about it later. In the meantime, it's not going to make copies of itself and cause more problems. And then sometimes if there's even more damage, then a, a um, cell will just go directly to that falling off process, apoptosis. But apoptosis is also a program. It's, it's um, an intentional thing. You start to see changes in cell um, in advance of apoptosis, where it's basically getting ready to make sure that it dies off in a way that's healthy for our tissues. And then if stress is like huge, then that's what's called necrosis, which is unplanned cell death. That's like, you know, you, um, you know, got bit by a, a snake or spider or something that caused like trauma, the tissue. So there's this continuum of how stressful something is and how the body or cells deal with it. And 
Salyosinescence is somewhere in that, that middle, and it, autophagy would be, in a simple sense, something that would help a cell repair itself so it doesn't need to go into this senescence software program. That's very clear. And as you were talking, I was thinking it's not necessarily a bad thing, right? Like if there's a cell that is cancerous, we want it to go this route, right? Yeah. So, um, so there's like a couple points. So almost nothing is like black and white, always good or bad, right? It's context matters, right? right? So we tend to use this idea of transient senescent cells and lingering senescent cells. So this oversimplifies what's nuanced, but think of like transient ones that they come in, they have a purpose, they do it, and then they naturally just go through this falling off process. And lingering ones are ones that for whatever reason, they get stuck and they accumulate over time, right? So when we, like, that's how I partition. But there's times when the transient ones do something important. So like a classic example would be intense exercise. You know, intense exercise is gonna create a little bit of microtrauma in that muscle. And so we would naturally create senescent cells as part of what's gonna say, hey, this is, um, you know, it needs some tender loving care. We need to do some things to like, you know, repair, heal that tissue. We need to call the immune system in because that'll gobble up some of the, you know, anything that's damaged. And so what they've found as an example, like in a young mouse, they'll exercise them intensely. The young mouse will create a bunch of senescent cells, but in a day or two, they're all cleared away. They've either on their own gone through this falling off process or the immune systems come in and found the stragglers. But in an older animal, a week, two weeks, three weeks later, the senescent cells that were created from that intense exercise, they're still there hanging around causing problems. So the issue isn't per se senescent cell. It's is a senescent cell. Did it do its job? And now, you know, it's what's that? The um, end by date, like the end by date happened. and It's been removed or for some reason, has it figured out a way to hang around and be a nuisance? And the goal of like senolytic strategies, things aimed at trying to remove senescent cells isn't to do things to prevent senescence from happening when it's good. It's to specifically find these cells that are the yellow leaf equivalents that are just lingering and should have gone through this journey and nudge them to finally go through that next step so that they'll be pruned away. Now, where would be some places where these senescent cells take hold in the body? And I'm just going to guess, would it be the places where our body hurts? <laughs> yes. Well, the, so um, so the, the, really, they've found them in all tissues okay. so far. The, the, probably the number one spot where they tend to grow or accumulate is connective tissue. So fibroblasts would be the cell type, but fibroblasts are found in our connective tissue. And connective tissue is, you know, the tissue in our joints, our, our fat tissue, um, you know, it's, it's underneath the layer of our skin. So um, connective tissue would be one we heal. Um, another area would be the lining of our blood vessels and lymph, um, and then our immune system. So one of the big things that happens with aging is it's called immunosenescence, but immune cells become senescent and then they linger, but they're not able to do, you know, the immune job anymore. So 
Um, so those three areas were the, the first three and probably where disproportionately senescent cells were early on found to accumulate. But over time, as research has realized how important these cells are for aging, they found senescent cells in tissues that, well, I guess stepping back, um, have you ever heard the idea that cells turn over about every seven years? Yeah. Something along those lines. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's an average, but like in some, like blood cells turn over every couple months. Um, cells lining our digestive tract, you know, like every one to two months. But something like our heart tissue, that turns over about every four decades. Muscle tissue, it's about every 15 years. Liver's about one to two years, right? So different tissues at different rates. And so early on, it was thought that senescent cells most likely were problematic in tissues that were turning over cells quicker where now we know that they can accumulate even in heart tissue, which has a much slower turnover or in muscle tissues, as an example. And then there's some, some, but not very many cell types that never create um, daughter or son cells that they're, they never divide once, once they're made, they're good for a lifetime. And our neurons in our brain are the classic example of that. Like we don't make new neurons. So it used to be assumed that these cells that couldn't divide could it become senescent because what would be the point, right? They don't divide anyways. Why would we stop them from dividing? But now scientists realize that there's senescent cells both in the brain surrounding neurons and that some neurons can become senescent. And going back to that idea of autophagy you mentioned, ideally, like one, we wouldn't stress our brain or our neurons <laughs> too much. But if we did, that they would go through autophagy to make sure that they didn't get so much damage um, and so like autophagy becomes super important for neurons because we want to make sure we don't inadvertently create senescent ones. But um, so senescence can now occur everywhere um, or is known to occur everywhere. Um, though I would say most, like if you think of some of the classic functional things with aging. So one of the, the struggles with aging is that our muscles tend to become weaker and smaller, even if we do good things like exercise and, and eat right. And in um, one of my favorite cellular senescence animal studies, they took young mice, they took old mice, and um, again, they did something that would create an anabolic signal. So the, the two main things that will do that is either exercise or eating a, like a big enough burst of protein at a meal. And what they found is that the young mice had a really good anabolic response to that signal. But the old mice didn't. They were what they called in the study anabolic resistance. So think of like the idea of insulin resistance. You, you have the signal, but for some reason, the response to it is muted. And what they found is if they did something to clear out the senescent cells in the old mice, then they reversed the anabolic resistance, they essentially rejuvenated the muscle, created a response much more like a young mouse would have. And so, you know, that would be one area. So I know for me, you know, I mentioned at the beginning, after we do this recording, I'm going to go out and do you know, like heavy straps as a weightlifting exercise. So that was something I looked at. Like when I started taking qualycinolytic, um, um, did I, um, did it unstick me from my weightlifting plateau? And, you know, how did my muscle respond to that, you know, anabolic signal compared to how they seemingly were responding before? Um, I know one of our so one of the things Neurohacker Collective prides ourselves on before launching a product is we'll always do some kind of a small study where we'll 
put the you know the product together because you know, we usually are using multiple ingredients just to make sure one that it's safe that it's tolerable for people and two we'll come up with well how are we going to test it what are we going to see if we give this to people if it works the way we hope how will they respond what will they, their benefits be and so for this particular product before we launched it we recruited a bunch of people that had issues with flexibility, right? So challenges bending over, again, super common as we get older, um, you know, issues with how comfortable they could do things like going up and down stairs, going shopping, getting in and out of cars, you know, that type of thing. And then we had them do a few cycles of this, um, this product. And a cycle for the audience is taking it for two days and then have a, like a window of time that you don't take it. And then take it again for two days and then have a window. So we did three cycles and what we saw was just huge improvements in this group of participants in, in those areas, right? So we had cherry picked a group that we thought might benefit because that's an area that you know many people experience issue aging. But, um, but there's lots of areas, skin would be another one. Um, like I, I mentioned, connective tissue, skin's you know, <laughs> one of our more important uh, areas of connective tissue. So interesting. And it's um, interesting some of the the strategies that I've heard over over the time from you know many of the people in, in the collective. It, these are the things that you notice right away when you improve certain things, your skin right away improves. You know, um when when you change and do something different, you get rid of some toxins, you can see it, it obviously, and people will see it in you. And say, what have you done differently? And, you know, you might have cut something out, and and it shows up. So it's just, it's interesting. Um, I just wonder. There was something that when when I was reading this stuff, it brought me back to the late '90s when I used to sell vitamins. I used to um, talk about this doctor that would, you know, he had all the science behind these vitamins that got rid of free radicals. I think it was like a selenium based product. And all these people would come and buy these vitamins from me based on this one statement, like this is the only vitamin that gets rid of free radicals. How is this different from free radicals or oxidative stress? What What's different about this than that? Yes. So um, what I mentioned, like there's kind of the continuum of how cells adapt to stress in their environment. The Antioxidant defenses what I was what I mentioned as kind of one of their first steps, right? That's so antioxidant defenses would be the cells way of dealing with oxidative stress. So, you know, okay. they'll upregulate enzymes like glutathione peroxidase and SOD, which is superoxide dismutase and catalase. And then they'll try to make more of important um, antioxidant and detox compounds like glutathione, right? So our cells will try to do that for us. And as long as they have the resources to do that, it's sometimes better. Think of like exercise, right? Like um, the, the way I think of exercise is that, you know, I do say the weightlifting and then my muscles get bigger and stronger because my body thinks like, oh, I'd be better be more prepared for when Greg lifts weights next time, mm -hmm. right? So that it's always this idea of adaptation of, and and we want our, we want to give that trigger. We want our, our, tissues to have the resources to then adapt. And so with antioxidants, the concern with, so oxidative stress is real, right? That's a, 
again, something that almost all types of stress, no matter the source, whether it's like emotional stress, physical stress, chemical stress, at a cellular level, there'll be oxidative stress. That's just part and parcel of it. But then the question is, is it better to let the cells adapt to that, like get tougher, create their own antioxidant defenses, or should we just give them high amounts of antioxidants? And is that a better route? And I think at this point, science would be like, oh no, it's way better to do things where that they create their own antioxidant defenses. And the, you know, one of the concerns about people smarter in this area than me is that if you give too many antioxidants, then cells don't need to toughen up and create their antioxidant defenses because oh. we've, we've, we've done that for them. Right. I, so, um, you know, so because of that, like that free radical theory of aging, it still hovers around, but it's not one of the main ones The the two main camps, I think in the aging world are aging because of damage accumulation or aging is programmed. And, um, and the, the distinction would be, so like things like autophagy and cellular senescence, those would be characteristic of we're getting older because these things related to da damage aren't working as well as they do in younger cells, younger bodies. The programmed aging is this idea that evolutionarily, you know, mammals, living organisms were designed to reproduce. Once we've reproduced, then there's almost this software program that kicks in that says, okay, you've done your job. Now we don't need to to do as good a job to make sure that we persist through time. And so there's those two camps and they're not mutually exclusive. And the free radical theory of aging would have been an older thing that's, I, I think now would be thought of as part of the damage accumulation, but not a particularly um, nowhere near as um, thought to be like, there's a solution like antioxidants, like it would have been in that time period in the nineties, where now, Senolytics, as an example, um, I think it was 2015 is when Mayo Clinic and Scripps Institute of Aging coined the term senolytic. And what they had done was they had found that these compounds, when given to mice, somehow went in and el eliminated some of these lingering senescent cells that had accumulated. And lo and behold, tissues rejuvenated, the older mice were healthier, they lived a bit longer, all these different areas of dysfunction were, in a sense, rejuvenated, they were more, you know, made like young mice. So antioxidants have never shown any promise in that, right? It was this theory, but in the theory, this idea of like, we should just do things to stress cells, a small amount, right, like a hormetic dose, and let them make more of their antioxidant defenses is a smarter way to go. And it's why, you know, among some of the people that you mentioned, you know, they do things like cold plunges and the intermittent fasting and microdosing stress, basically, to toughen Sadas. themselves up. Sadas, exercise. So it, there just seems to be a, a list of everything to do. Um, and and when when I was listening to your interview with Dave Asprey, I love how he's always trying to biohack even what you've invented here. And, you know, he was saying perhaps maybe for dosing, maybe in the future, could it be something that we take like every decade or where do you see this going? Like, how have you created the dosing right now? and Where will it go in the future? So with um, Cetolytics currently are done with what's, often termed like a hit and run dosing. So 
um, do a, a high dose of these compounds that can you know help senescent cells go through this falling off process. And then you have a, a period um, anywhere from, you know, in animal studies, it may be as short as seven days, but in humans, it's typically no sooner than two weeks. And then, a, you know, about, we usually recommend one month before you would do your next two days. So that's like, you know, a high dose and then plenty of time between dosing. And the, you know, so Dave was proposing, ah, I wonder if we eventually will get someplace where we can extend that, you know, interval out. And I mean, anything's possible, but I don't think it's likely with um, anytime soon. I think the only way to get there would be doing things that are more gene-based potentially, right? So one of the things they've done in, in some animal strains is create strains of mice as an example that essentially have software program that will clear out senescent cells on its own. Like, like they, and there's other, um, there's some, uh, like naked mole rat would be an example, but there's certain fish, like I believe rockfish. And there's just some long-lived organisms. And often they don't create cellular or senescent cells the same way we would, as an example. And so I think, you know, to get to Dave's promise, you'd have to live long enough for them to be able to do those kinds of gene things on humans. Got it. Well, well, I've got to just give a huge shout out here to Tina Gammon on your marketing team, because just, you know, a couple of days before the interview, she sent me uh, some of the products here to try um, the Vision, Night and Mind. And can I just tell you what I experienced? Because it was phenomenal. And I just wonder what you have to say about it. If like I'm a typical case or, you know, um, just just tell me for for someone who measures everything, I took the night one last night and I wear my whoop. Um, I'm fully aware. I write down my dreams uh, usually every morning. I had a really good sleep, felt rested when I woke up and I had extremely vivid dreams all in color. Is that something that you've ever heard before? Curious. Yeah. Um so the quality night would be our, I mean, we, our recommendation is to take it at dinner or, you know, like about three to four hours before bed. And the, the idea of that product was originally, you know, we all have pretty stressful, not all, but many of us have stressful days and trouble winding down between when we get home and when we go to sleep. And a big part of then why we have poor sleep is because we, they would use the word hyper arousal in sleep research, right? So um, like our stress system was just too on still. And so the, the goal of that product was to give all kinds of calming and relaxing, you know, like, you know, reishi mushroom, um, you know, botanicals that have been used for that as a means to just get someone so they could start to relax in advance of sleep with the then idea that if that happens, they should be able to sleep better. And so so yes, like sleep's the main thing that that people categorize that as a sleep product, but really it's supposed to do three things. Like it was supposed to help people with that, you know, relaxation time period leading up to sleep. Um, and it was supposed to um, ideally allow them to wake up feeling more refreshed the next morning and have a more productive day. And so like when I originally wrote, we write like a, a product specification for new yeah. products. So when I wrote this, I wrote, and as long as we do those two things and we don't mess up sleep, like we're probably good, <laughs> right? 
And then it just turned out a lot of people like you really noticed a big impact on sleep. So, you know, but it, then that varies. So we, in one of our small studies we did on it, we had a subset of people that were had something, either an aura, a Fitbit, some type of um, thing. And some, you know, oh, my, my REM sleep really, you know, was way better than I've ever had. Someone else, it might be, you know, maybe 25% of them, oh, my deep sleep was way longer. Other people, oh, my heart rate variability number was so much better. And for me personally, when I take that, my resting heart rate, I use an aura, um, okay. but my resting heart rate across sleep will usually be a few beats per minute slower. So like my body's just more relaxed yeah. through that sleep state. So, so yeah, we, it's sleep's hard and it's, yeah. it's so individual, but we definitely get lots of testimonials like yours where someone will take that and notice something different. And the other thing I would just say for you, since you just started it, is that what we've routinely seen is that for sleep quality, it's better over a month than over a couple of days. It's better over two months than over a month. Like some of those things are meant to gradually um, improve the systems that help our brain regulate sleep. Well, sleep is my weakest link. So I'm definitely going to continue after this, this um, episode and I'll do another one um, where I'll come back on and explain what happened and refer back to this interview because I noticed such an impact and I definitely felt rested. That's a, a, a big notice when you wake up, are your eyes still tired? Do you want to go back to sleep? Are you ready to get the day going and definitely felt rested. And then the, the next one I took was the mind. I took that the next day. I didn't do the vision one. And, and I'll just tell you why I'm trying, I'm, right now looking at getting LASIK. So I'm uh, wearing contacts and I just thought, should I mess around with the vision one later? Maybe after I've done LASIK or what, what would be the, the thought on the vision? What's the goal of the vision one? Yeah. So, um, so vision was created mostly thinking about screen time protection. And it's because a lot of us at Neurohacker are on computers a lot. Me personally, as an example, but a, a lot of our science team. And, um, and there's some great nutrients that help our, with particularly that. So when I think of vision, like most of people think of like, what are you gonna do for LASIK? So that would be a term mm -hmm. visual acuity, right? Like how clearly we can see a letter or a number or something right. like that. But vision has all kinds of different jobs, right? So it has like one of the things is, you know, um, peripheral vision, right? That Andrew Huberman, you know, like, so doing this with my hands, I can see that movement, right? So that's has nothing to do with visual acuity. Another would be changing in intensities of light or protecting us from intense light, you know, blue light, as an example. Um, that's so when I think of like the, the one vision has all these different jobs, the eyes are basically an extension of the brain. So hence the neurohacker bit. But then we have things that really are the front of the eye physiology, right? So our lens, and then we have the back of the eye, that's the retina. We have um, the muscles that help our eyes to focus, right? To create the visual acuity, but we also have muscles, it's called the near triad response, but basically if there's bright light in front of us, but darkness all around us. So imagine we're laying in bed, but looking at our cell phone or a tablet, right? So that's going to cause a different dilation of the pupil than being right now with you know the outside light around me being bright and my computer. And so a huge chunk of vision is these small muscles 
you know, around our pupil, muscles that help us rotate our eyes. And when we're on a screen, they just all get so stressed mm-hmm. because we're, we're looking at a, you know, so the back of our eyes stress because of all the blue light and the flicker from the screen, the front of our eye, because of that extra stress, right? The oxidative stress basically on the front of our eye. So a super common thing with people that use screens a lot would be something ar- around dry eyes, either yeah. their eyes water too much or they've used that resource up and they've become dry. And then their muscles get tired. They get fatigued because we're, instead of our, like being out in nature and our eyes shooting over here and here and darting all over the place, they're locked in one thing. It's like holding a weight until your your muscles are trembling. So quality of vision was designed for those three things, like front of the eye support, back of the eye support, and to help these fatigued muscles. So the, the visual acuity, that's not something really supplements at least quickly do anything for. Right. A few things like bilberry long enough might help some people, but these other things, most of us that are on screens need a lot of extra support. So that's quality vision. So I, it's, it's funny. It's, it's one that we do the least amount promoting, but our science team, if you ask everyone science team, what you take the most, it's always vision. Oh, interesting. Interesting. Cause at the end of the day, my eyes are exhausted. It's like, can barely keep yeah. them open because that's this is where I hang out all day and you know all these screens so I'll definitely give that one a try and then I tried the mind one I took it this morning and I noticed so many different things it was clarity was the biggest one because I'm I you know measure uh clarity on a weekly basis I give myself a score how clear was I um during my day-to-day activities and and I so I know not clear versus clear and it was a level of clarity almost like when you put uh, like new new glasses on and you can see it was extremely clear um extremely happy I'm always a happy person but um just like everything was going great this morning it was the best day ever I'm like what what is in this stuff so is that something that you hear yeah, so Qualia Mind, that was our original product. So it's um that that's our, you know, um flagship products to this day. Um the Scenolytic that we spent a lot of time. That's actually been our, our number two selling product. But the um Qualia Mind, yeah, we we would use the term nootropic, but the idea of a nootropic or that term is this idea of like um substances that will just help your brain perform better, but typically in areas like alertness, focus, mental clarity. Over time, memory memory is a, a lot slower process than like focus. You should feel, you know, with a good nootropic that that day. So yes, we get lots of um, people that share experiences very similar to what you have when they introduce quality of mind. And, and I me rest- too. Like one of oh, I was going to say my one of my early experiences. This took more than my first day, but I all of a sudden after a couple of days noticed like, wow, I really want to get into my work instead of procrastinate and dither so yeah I read some of the testimonials just to see you know am I like close to what other people are saying and I I read some people saying their intuition was improved which I can imagine it it takes some time to notice things like that but you you know stuff like that when you when you you know or, or looking at that type of thing you would see a difference um and and with working out you know that 
oh, I, I've got to go to the gym or, you know, after a long day, it's hard to pick up your hiking shoes and it's hot outside. I'm not going to go, but you just have this little extra boost of energy, I think, to, to do those and things. The, and I think energy is the perfect word. So I, I use the idea of mental energy, right? But like, and Dave Ashby would talk about this and I think it's Headstrong, his book on the brain and mitochondria. But the our brain uses about 25% of all of the energy that our body produces, right? It's just a voracious consumer of energy. And neuroscience research would basically say, like, whenever we're thinking hard, you know, so using our brain to do strenuous things, we tend to regionally deplete energy, right? So that's, like, that's the limitation often on, you know, performing better is the brain being able to make more energy and more neurotransmitters, more of the things it uses to be able to have mental clarity and focus. And it's why, like I said, um, our, our CEO, when he decided to found the company, is like, well, you know, the, if, if we really want to make the world a better place, we've got to upgrade people's brains. We've got to give them more focus, more patience, more, you know, creativity, the, the things we need in a, in a modern world to be better versions of ourselves. And I, I love that you mentioned the end of the day, because that's how I think of a product like Qual Your Mind. That's the silent benefit. Like most people like you notice, oh, I, I was more mentally clear. I had da-da-da. But like my goal for people is, and I'll tell a quick story about my dad. So my dad, uh, we grew up in the suburbs of Boston. He had crazy commute. Like, God bless him for doing it because I would never want to do that commute every day. So, um, you know, in a high pressure job, he was an executive at a, a big engineering company. So he would get home and be kind of a grouchy, yeah. irritable guy for that time period when he first came in the door. Enough that, you know, we learned to be kind of on our best behavior. Like uh, I had um, big Irish Catholic family. So there was six kids of varying ages. Uh, but my brother and I were a year apart and, you know, we would often bicker, but we, we, we behaved well when my dad got home. And so what he would then often do, would you know, shine shoes, go do like, you know, he had a, a little work bench area. He would, you know, fiddle and have dinner. And then after that, he would have, have had time to recharge, for lack of a better way to say it. And he would be fun to watch TV with and, you know, like, you know, good dad, right? But so my story about my dad is that he was just mentally depleted when he first got home between the day at the office, the drive home, you name all the other things that he just run out of mental energy and needed some time to recharge to become a better version of himself. And I think that's the truth for most of us, right? Like the best version of ourselves shows up maybe at work, but not when we walk in that door at the end of the day to spend time with our loved ones. And so when I think of a great nootropic, that's a, like the side effect benefit. You should get that productivity at work, but you should be a better version of yourself over time at the end of the day. And it's that was the other big benefit I noticed after taking Qualia Mind for a while is I noticed that, you know, driving home in a bit of traffic, I would just have way more tolerance and patience for that. You know, if I met people to do trivia at a bar, I could deal with the irritations there much more readily. So so that anyways, I would say, yes, for me, that's a huge thing to pay attention to, whether it's quality of mind or some other cognitive product. Is that helping you to be a, the best version of yourself, not just immediately after it, 
but later in the day, which is often the most important time, because that's when we're, you know, around the people that our behavior is going to impact the deepest. Yeah, I'm the crankiest at um, 8.15 at night when I've got to pick up my kids from gymnastics and I go to bed so early because I wake up early just from, you know, the heat in Arizona, you got to get a, an early start to the day. But 8.15 at night, if I could be a, a nicer person, is it's it's a tough time. It's like, I just want to get home and, and get to sleep. And, you know, they're still up and excited and want to tell you all about their moves and whatever they mastered. And if I could give myself a little bit more uh, compassion and understanding at that time of, of night, I, I can see how I'd be a better person for sure. As we wrap up, there's been so much that you've taught me here, but um, what would be one thing that you hope our listeners would take away from this episode on your work over the years of Synaletic Cells, of Neurohacker Collective? What's, you know, just wrap it all up, something we can all know about to optimize our health and longevity right down to the cellular level. What would you say? So I... I'm, I'm a, like I said, a big fan of what Qualysenolytic can potentially do, in part because it's really easy. It's just a two day a month, you take, you know, six capsules a day. So it's a pretty, you know, large amount of capsules those two days. Um, but I think of it as a, an investment into both improving short term, like how we're functioning if there's an impairment, but also to make sure that we're healthier and more vibrant going through the decades because um, I'm, I'm 61 now, so I have you know, quite a few friends that just aren't able to do anywhere near you know, what I can currently do or you know, um, you know, older loved ones that for you know, decades haven't been able to do much. And I would want for them what I want for me, which is to be able to continue to enjoy my life as the decades progress. And I think Qualysenolytic of our products is the best investment in that. And the only other thing I would say is, you know, add stress to your list because I think stress is just a crazy important fundamental that makes almost everything else so much more challenging. And I think stress is also fairly misunderstood. But I, I um, Selye was the, the researcher that the idea of physiological stress and by the end of his you know research what he had felt was that in humans at least the biggest stressor by far was mental and emotional stress so um, and, and I think many of us you know um, if we don't have it we're exposed to it so um, creating um, tools or strategies to take that stress either off the menu or to minimize it, I just think are so important for staying healthy. I know when I was more actively seeing patients, if stress was super high, you'd often see that right before some health took a nosedive. So, you know, the time to make sure we don't do the nosedive is in advance. So I think of like senolytic on a cellular level helps get rid of cells that are too stressed, but anything we can do to make ourselves more resilient to stress in advance of it occurring, because we're going to be blindsided by something stressful that we didn't take into account. So we want to, as best as possible, build that resilience in advance. Well, this has been extremely eye-opening and powerful. Dr. Kelly, 
I want to thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. I was so excited to meet you today, to dive deeper into this topic, and to think about how I'm going to implement these groundbreaking products into my day. For people who want to try, I was thrilled to see that your team actually created an affiliate link and a coupon code. They just click on the link and they put the code neuroscience and that gives them 15% off the purchase. So thank you so much for that for our audience. Um, and I want to thank you again for spending some time on your Friday night with me here, educating me to um, help others to really understand this topic and what's out there for us. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you for having me tonight. Thank you.